you can have paradox within your life and be fine with that. I'm not. I know you're not. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Irenacast. I'm your host, Jeff, and with me, as always, is my co-host, Alan. Heyo. On the first and third Tuesday of every month, we bring to you our perspectives on theology and culture from a post-evangelical lens. Thank you for joining us for another conversation to provoke your progressive Christian imagination. This week, we're going to do things slightly differently. Uh, We have a short topic and a long segment this week. So we put the word out last week um, on our Facebook and Twitter and Instagram that we were going to be doing an Irenicast AMA. So we got some questions from you, our listeners, and uh, we'll be doing that for our segment, which will go a little bit longer than usual. And we have a topic this week that's sort of along the lines of last week. It's not necessarily something that's in process, but it's something that we want to expand. So if you remember two episodes ago on episode 113, we had a roundtable of ministers who started something called Intersections and that was uh, Alan and three of his colleagues within the UCC. And in preparation for that, and in the the last few months where Alan has been talking about the idea of intersections, he keeps bringing this idea up to me in our conversations, and he even brought it up in the episode, uh, this idea of cultivating story. And I thought it'd be a great idea to kind of, since we're going to have a shortened topic this week, to kind of unpack that a little bit and see where it takes us, because it's something that's pretty much stuck with me since the moment he said it. And then the more he says it, the more I'm like, yeah, that's a really interesting idea. That would be something well to expand. So uh, let's just get into that aspect of it. So Alan, explain to me and our listeners what you mean by cultivating story and how that came up for you. So when we met in the round table, it really felt like the Knights of the round table, the more I think about it. When I look back, <laughs> when I look back at that conversation and I feel we're a bunch of people arriving at new ways of doing ministry. And it was really cool to sit together like that around that table. And do we have a clip of what we were talking about that we could play? Yeah. Here's, here's what Alan said in that particular episode regarding cultivating story. You know, in seminary, they talk about the attractional versus the missional model. Do you bring people to get them to come to church or do you prep people to go be the church out in the community? That was always the discussion. It's like, what about something completely different? What about like venerating people's stories, seeing them come to a community and being like, we're not just prepping you to go out there and go be spiritual in the world. You're spiritual beings who have already been in the presence of God, connected Mm -hmm. to God or, you know, how you construct yourself already. So in that discussion, I talked about seminary. And I went to seminary in like 2011 to 2014, and we discussed a lot about like what the nature of the church is and what that's what's called ecclesiology. What kind of ecclesiology you have? Like, why does the church exist? And the prevailing theories were stuff like the missional model. I'm sure you've heard that about that a lot, Jeff. Like we talked in yeah. all the books that, you know, emergent books that are coming out. It's important to be missional. What, what that means is the, the model before used to be that you build a cathedral in the middle of town and everyone shows up. That's the sub and Henry, the sub. <laughs> I can't speak. The hub and center. We'll just call it the sub of life for a village. And, you know, when people attack, you all hide in the church, the community itself, all of the important things happen in the church. And that's kind of what happened in rural, rural America back in the day. You had uh, seasons and communities that would gather together for harvesting and things like that. And the church lent itself to that kind of lifestyle. And everyone showed up at church, right? And all the way up until like the 1950s, the church was a very important center of life. So they call that the attractional model. And the idea is that you you build it, they will come. 
Did you see that movie with uh, yes? What's his the Field of Dreams? I did. Kevin Costner. My family grew up watching that. <laughs> For those of you who haven't seen Field of Dreams, you should so watch it. He has this dream, right, where he builds a, a baseball field and all the ghosts of of players' pasts come and play, and everyone pays money back in you know. Back in the day, you could make movies like this. I don't know if you can pull it off today. It's it's one of the <laughs> the it's one of the select few of movies, along with Brian's song, that uh, you're allowed to cry within the framework of toxic masculinity. <laughs> <laughs> yes, those who are that's you know I think that's what made it so popular. You can still feel manly in whatever right. construction you had of of manhood and cry at this movie. <laughs> Brian's song was like that too. It's true. Oh my goodness. Um. So uh, you, you build it and they come. That's that's the idea. People from all over the United States would come to this field, right, and to watch the people play. And church was a place where you build a community and people are supposed to come to church. It's important that you get butts in the seats. That's that's the attractional model. And maybe that still exists for a lot of people. They feel like their church is succeeding or not based on how many people are there, how good of a cross-section you have of different types of of people age and the only um, the only place that that actually works and happens in today's society is in springfield on the simpsons (laughs) hey (laughs) i sent you a picture of that this is totally off topic but i (laughs) I loved it the best sign ever that i saw for the march for our lives was a res at ralph what's his name Ralphie. ralphie ralphie holding a gun and he always says things that just like you know, very disconnected from what he's actually doing, but he's holding a gun and he says, I'm a militia. <laughs> <laughs> that was a sign for one of the protests. It's so funny. Uh, anyway, that's a whole different topic. So, um, yeah, that, that model started breaking down for a lot of people, especially when Christianity wasn't the center of society anymore, post-Christendom, as all the books would say. So I'm reading all these books about post-Christendom, about, hey, church is not just about getting people to come to a building. Church is something different, right? It's supposed to be the people who are there. And so the model morphed into something else, and they called it the missional model, and that was you equip people for the mission of the church. And that means to, like – be like Christ in your neighborhoods, like to get to know your neighborhoods, to participate in society out there, not just stay in the, in the walls of the church, but like church was meant to be lived out by the people and church was more of a training ground for your mission. So that's, that was the missional model that people talked quite a bit. And I I found a lot of life in that, but I guess for me, something was still missing. Like, so when we, when we sat down for us to talk together about what intersections would be like, about church in general, about what's missing for us, that was the first thing that came up for me is like, what is the nature of church? And I thought outside of attraction, uh, getting people there, sending people out, w- what about venerating people's stories as they bring them? Uh, I think it would be countercultural to create a space where people actually listen to one another's stories. Correct me if I'm wrong, but there's not a lot of places you can go in our society where you're heard and seen, where you're challenged to actually speak your story and be known by other people. And I think that 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 is something the church can do particularly well. And theologically, God is already working in people's lives, right? Not just in the Bible, not just in the church, 
not just in the minister, because the ministers usually stand up. I know you, Jeff. You tell really good stories, right? <laughs> you talk about your life when you preach as a, I do. Like a youth yeah. pastor, especially as a youth pastor. We did a summer camps and stuff together. Does God only work in a minister's life to teach things that have that bring to bear on truth about God, about the the, the community, or is God speaking and working through people in the community itself, even if they don't have the appropriate language or even if, God forbid, we don't agree on things, um, should people still be able to show up as they are and us venerate the sacred in them? That That's something that I'm sort of developing in my mind is for what, what church is for. So there's a lot of different things to talk about in there, I think, for me. But that's the general idea. And what draws me to that idea in terms of story? I mean, growing up Pentecostal, we always had testimony, right? Like, so share your testimony, share your testimony. But the problem with that and where it falls short, I think of what the idea that you're putting forward is that that testimony still had to happen in the confines of, well, number one, a certain amount of time, because it could never go longer than the pastor or worship or whatever. So you're confined by the fact that it's this little niche within a greater thing that has its primary importance over everything else. And then you also have the idea that as long as your story is within the confines of right belief, right. of right practice. Repentance, salvation, coming right. to, the, to and the light, to the Lord. And if it's interesting, that was the other thing, right? Like it had to be grand. I mean, I grew up feeling like every time someone gave their story that because I didn't do drugs and, you know, get drunk and super promiscuous during high school that I didn't have a story or a testimony that my life was boring, that my story didn't matter as much because God didn't do as much in me. And there weren't a lot of voices saying the contrary to that. In instead of cultivating story, it's appropriating story, <laughs> yeah. you know, to to bolster something that's already there. And it's, uh, it's invalidating regular life too. Right. Yeah. To exactly. celebrate only these uh appropriate sacred moments, you invalidate normal life for people and how God might show up for them. And so I think as a, as a minister, it's an art to be able to help people see the sacred in the mundane. Exactly. Like that's the point of the church to me. <laughs> and the re and some people might say, well, you know, you should preach. And so I, I can hear in my mind, this sort of rebuttal saying churches for preaching the gospel Churches for for teaching from the Bible. It's not for listening to people's stories, what they bring forward. Like I'm, I'm considering doing once a quarter and maybe even as much as once a month, having a Sunday where I interview someone from the church about their life. I help them ahead of time, prep them because that's a part of my pastoral duty, and uh, celebrate who this person is. Because we we've done funeral after funeral for people after they die, and everyone speaks about their lives. Everyone says how much would they care about them, but they're gone. <laughs> and it's like, what about when people are still around? Can we venerate their stories before they die? And can that actually be a part, a function of the church? So I thought about doing that, and I hear this rebuttal being, why would we listen to just fallible people reporting their experiences and think that that is as important as the Bible, as important as preaching. And what I would say to that, and at least what I'm saying in my mind and having this internal dialogue, is that uh, the gospel is enfleshed. There is no Bible that exists outside of the bodies and experiences of people. Everything in the Bible was um, people reporting their experience of the divine, reporting their experience of the good news, of the good work, of what matters. And it almost feels like the 
classic Christian thing is to be like, your life doesn't matter. Your experiences don't matter. You have to just take on this doctrine or something like that. And to me, that that invalidates the entire mission of the gospel, which is to see God working inside of humanity, inside of people being connected to those maybe mundane things. Right. And what we do when we do that, you know, is we we normalize, quote unquote, normalize a certain way of life. And that disregards everyone else's way of life and an unsaid way, right? If you don't rep, like we've talked about this numerous times throughout the course of the show, but the idea of representation, you know, if you're, you know, your community is going to have its own stories and to be able to cultivate that. But also how do you, how do you cultivate an identity and at the same time leave a wide open door for the expanse of that identity? And I think that that's, that's what pastors should be concentrating on, not their stupid sermon and, you know, <laughs> dumb doctrinal crap and all the, you know, stuff that goes in that. Like, I'm so sick and tired because I think what you're proposing, it takes a dramatic shift in the way that pastors are trained, the way right. that, that pastors are, are are taught, the way that they operate within a church. And then it also goes against the tide of just what people have come and grown accustomed to in churches on committees and all that kind of stuff. And I'm so sick of hearing, well, that's just the way it is. You know, you got to you gotta go with it. And I understand nuance. I understand change. I'm actually pretty good at that in, the, in a ministry setting and being able to shift the focus and, and steer a big ship into a way in increments. So I understand the big work of what that takes, but it doesn't mean it's not worth it. I mean, it has to happen. Otherwise, it just dies. It just flounders. And, and when I say that, like not at the expense of like, oh, well, there's not as many people attending or whatever, but the people with inside, they just, they think that this is what the church is. It's just routine. And it, I don't know. Yeah. Don't know. Th- this, this would challenge our ideas of what a church is. Right. D- directly. And one of the dangers that you bring up that is very true is that you run, run the risk of not being able to control what the the common identity is like, yeah, you, you center like my church, we center on the person of Christ, the work of Christ in following Christ. Like we're, a, it says on our front, uh, front of our church, a Christ centered community. It does not mean that we all agree on everything. And I think the danger of, of opening up the church to venerating people's stories is that we don't all agree. And our theology might be very different. There may be people who completely construct that in a totally different way. The beauty uh, in spite of that danger is that you're actually doing theology together. The way it works right now is the pastor stands up and says something. This is the way that it should be. Everyone goes in their homes and they nuance it among themselves. They nuance how it applies to their lives, what may or may not be true. They, sometimes I'm like in a perfect ideal situation. They'll talk to their kids, their teenagers, and bring them in on it too. But usually that doesn't even happen. It just happens on an individual level or maybe between spouses or something. And the 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 community – like. Um, applies it in all these different ways. What about doing public theology together with people who are quote unquote, maybe not theologians or um, leaders or people who are appropriate to have like some say, but who would live something totally differently. I do believe I can learn something from the people in my congregation so much, right? I don't have it all figured out. And I think doing public theology together, what my job is as a minister is making sure that that happens in a life giving way that there's a, con- the, we talked about an intersection, a, a container, right? Like creating an first Corinthians 14, this pop, you know, this just pops into my head. Paul's talking about to the different spiritual gifts that exist in a congregation and what people bring to the table. And he says, um, 
when you come together, everybody has something, right? Some have a, a, a hymn, a song, some a lesson, some a revelation, some a tongue, some an interpretation. Um, but everything is supposed to be done for the edification of, of the group. And I think the trick there is allowing for so much diversity, allowing for people to show up as they are, to bring what they're bringing, to bring their story to be venerated, but to create an atmosphere that prevents people from silencing each other or from dominating the conversation or um, just embarrassing themselves, maybe even like there's something sometimes I can work with people ahead of time to listen to their story, to kind of like to help them have another ear to, to, to work some things out. Sometimes it just helps me to speak to someone ahead of time before I publicly speak. And it makes me more clear on what I want to say. Not that they're guiding me, but that, that, that they're just being a, a listening partner. I think that is what pastors have a gift for is helping people. Um, maybe that's what we need to reclaim. We need to reclaim the art of testimony of being able yeah. to speak. It is, uh, there's, there's like five different methods of psychological counseling that I was introduced to in my pastoral counseling class. There's like, you know, behavioral therapy, cognitive, um, like Freudian stuff, like psychotherapy. And, uh, one thing that really stood out to me was the humanistic model. And that is helping people author their stories, like helping them, like recognizing that the person coming to counseling has everything within them that they need to to change to overcome these things to 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 live life in a new way and you're there as an affirming presence to, to help them author those stories so um that that's a model that i really connected with and i think all of the different psychological models have something good to give but the 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 church for me is really lacking in the area of helping people own their own stories helping them articulate them if we could just offer that to this next generation, we'd have all our millennials back. <laughs> I think like all of the th- and I, I know that sounds really weird or whatever, but there's an entire group of people who have ditched out of church because it doesn't connect with them. It doesn't apply. Right. right. And I think that uh, moving to a model that venerates people's stories is challenging in a good way. I'd feel challenged going to a church like that, seeing people speak bluntly about their lives, uh, talking about things being put in a position to learn from them or a different way or hearing something different and then reflecting on, Hey, do I have it in me to stand up and speak about my life or maybe to sit down, maybe, you know, be interviewed by the minister at one point in front of everyone else and to do public theology where I talk about like how I construct my feelings about God or how God has interacted with my life or, or maybe not even interacted, but what the, the meaning in my life that I'm carrying, that kind of invitation is an invitation to vulnerability and that's obviously scary. There are groups who are doing good work like that. Like StoryCorps is one where these interviews happen, where people talk about their lives that are really interesting. You can interview anyone, record it, upload it to the website. I love that. But that's different doing it in a congregation of people of all different kinds, people who are committed to being in community with you and to actually know you who, you for who you are. That's so much more miraculous to me yeah and and it's it's work to cultivate you know we so much s- more work <laughs> yeah i mean we could sit there and you know spend all of our time on our classes and our sermons and all that kind of stuff and and pull out all these amazing concepts and ideas from from scripture and church history or whatever but the plain reality of the fact is that we are one person and there are going to be some concepts that we might find interesting or academically challenging 
but we have no embodiment of that experience in our own life. But there are people in our congregations who do have embodiment of that experience and exploring that and being able to get to know people's story on a regular basis so that when you get to a place as a pastor or minister or speaker or whatever, to say this idea is really interesting. I wonder what it feels like. You know what I mean? I wonder what it's like to have this experience and then think, oh no, this person said that at a when we were talking and oh my gosh, I need to call them and find out. Like, you know, incorporate them into those things and make this a mesh of how do we balance our story, our neighbor's story, and then the church's story. <laughs> right. All in in tradition. Whatever we call that tradition, right? The church's story. And meld that in a thing that is uh palatable, you know? So it, that it is... requires new skills to do that, like you mentioned. Yeah, absolutely. And new training. One thing that I've geared I've I've started doing kind of naturally, sometimes it feels natural, in the middle of a sermon, I'll be talking about a concept and I'll know some people have different like experiences of it. So I'll stop in the middle of a sermon and I'll let people speak in the congregation about their experiences. But obviously if you don't do that in a good way, or you're not like really on top of it, that can be detrimental to what you're experiencing. So there, there's skills and, in, in, you know, presenting it a certain way, but letting people speak and disagree or talk about how it affects them personally and watching other people doing that and feeling like you might have a place to say something. If you feel something that creates an entirely different atmosphere. That's a third space outside of missional and attractional and missional. You're being taught what to do, taught how to do things. Like you're not necessarily bringing anything to the table. Maybe you're just like the, the raw materials and you're being shaped into something and sent out as opposed to you've already been shaped. And this is what I want to jump on. I think maybe the theological disagreement is that God works outside of the Bible and the church. Right. <laughs> you know, does the spirit work? In different ways that are not approved or not churchified or Christianized, not only does the spirit work in that way, does the spirit work in people and cultures and ideas outside of our own that we should learn from? Those are two different things. Like I think some of my friends who are probably more conservative than me, like uh, theologically, would say, of course, God works outside of the church and the Bible to draw people to the church and the Bible. But that's different than like, does God actually have something to say to us through other people is a right. totally different idea. Or, and I, I or even that. or even have the concept and the idea and the, the the mental framework to see the Bible, the church, and out there or whatever as equal spaces of where God is working. Because you you know what is the Bible? It's a manifestation of that idea. Right. People working out their crap throughout centuries of time. And putting their stuff out there in a way to tell their story or tell their community's story. And most of it is story reflecting on tradition, right? Like they're not yeah. telling and recording, especially in the Hebrew scriptures. They're not – well, actually throughout the, all, the entire throughout scripture. The whole, yeah. They're not, they're not telling stories of things that are happening to them. They are reflective exercises in past stories and past experiences and how that reframes. And that's, that's, that's what the church is, right? The church is just a reaction to whatever community or whatever cultural they have around them. And that becomes their identity. The problem is, is then they take that identity and they try to universalize it for everyone else right. and say, this is our experience. It needs to be yours as well. And that's and, the mental jump that doesn't have to happen. Right. Maybe, maybe the whole, the whole purpose, not the whole purpose, but maybe one of the gifts of, of the tradition is that the smallest person on the national platform does have a story that matters. Israel matters. Their story matters. Their connection with God matters. And I think that's radical. And maybe that's something that we should internalize for us is that, Hey, 
you who don't have a theology degree, you who maybe have a different relationship with the Bible, you who have a different tradition, your story still matters, and we can learn from it. Right. And all the big stories of Scripture, all the major like movements of the people of God, when you know you have Moses, well, what did it start? It started with a guy, well, if you want to take it from the, the, the burning bush, it started with a guy just doing his job, trying to keep his sheep together, and then he sees something in distance, and it's this trigger. You talk about, like, the whole, you know, monarchy era of Israel that led to King David, who was the precursor for the idea of Messiah and Jesus. It started with a woman who was ridiculed by her, her co-wife uh, because she couldn't bear a child, and it's just her story of... I just want to bring this child into the world and consecrate it to God. And then that led to this monarchy, which then, you know, you go in like all these major movements started with just someone's everyday life working within that. And I think that we forget to highlight the everyday life. That's sad because that's where the power is located. Right. And what evangelical Christianity does wrong is it invalidates human culture and story and expression and literature because those things have power to create and they're not bad. They're not in and of themselves a bad thing. They just are. That's what we do as human beings. And God does work in that. Um, so part of the challenge of this in this conversation is how does this work in a church context? How does it not just become one of those groups where everyone tells their stories and nothing necessarily binds all of them together? And I, I'm I'm not recommending that the church just become kind of everyone sharing their own stories and that's it. And you pack up and go home. Well, the way invitation works in this is that uh, the central story that brings us together is the story of Jesus, right? And the way that Jesus lived. And that's a path that we're trying to follow. So there is an invitation element to that, but you can join us in contemplating that path and that person and following and not agree with everything else and bring whatever you're bringing. You know what I mean? There's it's right. It's the idea that, uh, you build a, a playground. I can't remember which book I read this in, but you build a playground. And if you go to playgrounds uh, around our country and you see the ones with fences, the kids are all on the fences. They tend to spread out all the way to the fences. But you look at playgrounds with no fences, the kids are all on the equipment in the middle. They're all together like around this thing. And so the the church that this author, if I can remember it, I'll put it in the show notes, advocated for was a church that had the center, Jesus, pretty clear. I mean, Jesus's life, right? That's what we're meditating on. But the edges are fuzzy. You know, we don't have 16 points of doctrine for you to belong to our church. You're coming to us as you're coming to the center of this park as whoever you are, and you're bringing that with you, you know, and we're going to kind of do the same together. But there's not these uh, limitations that we have for the community. You have to agree with us on all this stuff before you can participate and, and belong like that, and that's every church I've ever worked in was you have to believe all these things and sign on the dotted line rather than coming to do this stuff with us together. I guess I'll take some of the mis- missional language, the incarnational theology, right? The incarnational gospel, the one that is in real people's lives and present. That's what I'm interested in. Yeah. Yeah. And I would say just a final note to that. I think that it it sounds difficult and it sounds hard because – it leads to conflict, and that seems to be what most church culture surrounds around trying to avoid instead of embracing. You know, your your barometer sometimes as far as church success is 
how much agreement everyone is in. And then we, we force people into that with weaponizing the idea of unity and we need to be on the same page and that you can be unified and not on the same page in the terms of your story and everything like that. And it pushes us towards a tendency to invalidate someone else's story saying that they're interpreting their life wrong, which stop. <laughs> Don't right. do that because that's the worst thing you can do because all of us in all of our stories will reinterpret them over time. We'll look back. It'll change based on how we change and to force someone into looking at their life and questioning their life denies their journey and denies their process in finding peace in whatever area of life that they find themselves in. Um, I think that's interesting that you say conflict, like conflict averse. Wanting everyone to be on the same page. Those churches that that I'm thinking of, they actually say they'd stare a conflict in the face and do it really well. And it's like, no, you're actually doing it in an unhealthy way. You're just excommunicating people when they don't agree with like there's a there's a seminary president who released this letter about one of the professors who still believes in God, you know, still believes in the Bible, still believes in Jesus, but constructs the Trinity differently. They 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 got, you know, fired or whatever. That's totally fine. But the way that they they uh, announced it to the the university was like this person was never a believer and was a an adept hypocrite like throughout his whole, whole life and it's like dude the healthy conflict is one that allows people to be in conflict without invalidating everyone it's two sided too it's not bullying it's not like it's two sided yeah. yeah it's people who who are who are who are committed to sharing the 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 common space in spite of the conflict. I think that there's there's a difference between doing that kind of conflict and the kind of conflict that is like if you don't agree with us, goodbye, I'm standing on the gospel. I'm standing on my hill and you know, you can leave our our church. So so yeah, th- this conversation is it actually has uh huge consequences. People the families are divided by church all the time, by their expressions of their theology. Relationships are destroyed. Communities are built and, and, and dissolve. People's inner lives and their experiences of God are dependent on this stuff. And so I, I, I totally believe that we need to move in a new direction in this new era of church for how we construe what the purpose of church is. Absolutely. And, you know, that's, that's what we attempt to do here, right? Creating this place where we can cultivate. Obviously, we've cultivated our story over the course of, uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's actually the purpose of this podcast. Several. <laughs> I've never been shy about that. <laughs> uh, but we also in the process want to invite everyone else's story. So let us know what yeah. you think about this particular subject or just anytime contact us about your story and how, uh, how the things that we talk about either trigger things in you or inspire things in you for, for what you're doing and what you're working on and what your story is. Uh, so you can add your voice to this particular conversation uh, at the show notes at irenacast.com slash 115. That's irenacast.com slash 115. And there you'll find all the relevant links of things that we've talked about and a complete list of all the other ways to like, follow, and contact the show. That's irenacast.com slash 115. Uh, so for our segment, our extra long segment this week, we're going to be doing our uh, official Irenicast AMA, um, which I'm looking forward to. We got our first bit of audio feedback from one of our listeners, which we're excited to share for you. So let's do it.
So in the spirit of cultivating story and conversation, uh, we put it out there, like I said at the top of the show, uh, that we were going to do an Irenicast AMA. And uh, I just want to make clear from the beginning that this is an ongoing thing. We'd like this to be a regular segment. So anytime you have questions, comments, concerns to the show, which we've been getting so much great feedback over the last few months um, since we've returned from our hiatus, please do that. Uh, there are so many different ways in which to do that. You can go to our webpage at irenicast.com slash contact or the feedback section. And it has message um, us on Facebook. Yeah. Or messages on Facebook. It has a list of our personal emails, the podcast email, which is podcast at irenicast.com. We have a For feedback those of us form. Who are not as technically uh, savvy. Would you tell us what AMA means? Oh, that's right. It's uh, a. <laughs> it, it comes from Reddit, right? Ask me anything. I think so yeah. So ask me anything. Ask me anything. Uh, that's so that any any question. So maybe we should clarify that <laughs> with the promotion <laughs> of it. Uh, we'll figure out something as we go along. But this is our explicit invitation, if it hasn't been done so already, uh, to email us, contact us anytime individually or the show. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook. We tend to do a lot of communicating through Facebook and Instagram most of the time. Uh, like we put our episodes artwork on Instagram every time we post a new episode. And then we, we post pretty regularly. Thanks to Alan on um, Facebook. He is the, the meme King and he finds wonderful <laughs> things to, to put up there. Uh, I one put of, up a lot less than I want to. I'll just say that. <laughs> <laughs> well, one of, one of which we had a great response to, which is actually going to turn into an episode. So stay tuned for that. So, so yeah, those are all so the we've ways had a, we've had a few people respond to the AMA, right? Right. We did. So we do have some questions and this was, uh, you know, put out there. So let's go with the first question. This came from Facebook and it came from Jeremy Duncan. And um, he says, what are your thoughts on pacifism? This is a good question because this is a, this has been an ongoing thing in both of our lives. A conversation that's, that's a through line through our entire relationship (laughs) is this idea of pacifism. And uh, we went into great length in our very second episode. It's actually my favorite, or it was for a long time. Their second episode. And for a long time, it was our it was least downloaded. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> uh, But it's our second episode, irencast.com slash two, and it's uh, a finding a third way. And we talk about the Christian response to war. So my, my, my first thought on pacifism is that it's good because <laughs> I'm a pacifist and I do believe in peacemaking. Not the kind that avoids conflict, but the kind that gets really involved um, with creative solutions. And we talk a lot in that episode about the lack of creativity in things like war and right. violence and um, prophetic work is creative work that brings about peace. And now I think as I've kind of, uh, I guess, gotten older, that was like three years ago. <laughs> so can I say gotten older <laughs> as my perspective has been maturing? Um, I I find that I chafe a little bit at some people's way of being a pacifist. Like it's easy to be a pacifist when I live in a world where I'm not under threat constantly and where I can sit from my armchair as a white male who's big enough that I'm don't face threats of violence, even on the street when I'm walking, like that I don't live in an oppressed nation. Like I think of Gaza being occupied the, today. I think they just had 12 people killed by the Israeli defense forces when they're, um, on the border protesting. And I think of people who demonstrate when their communities are policed differently. And it's hard for me to look at them and be like, you should be a pacifist too. You know, you don't have a right to pick up a rock when someone is murdering you and hit them in the head with it kind of thing. Um, So I, I've, I've been moving away from armchair pacifism. I think that 
my kind of pacifism is, is if you choose that, you need to put your body, be willing to put your body in the way of the gears that move things. And so pacifism is not an easy ideal, but something that's embodied. And, uh, and, and I I don't know, I'm, I'd probably hit someone (laughs) or tackle somebody. I don't know. I think my pacifism, personally, this is just off the cuff and personal. I, I think my pacifism stops short of killing someone. Like when I see property destruction, I'm not like, oh, that is so morally wrong. I mean, Jesus, Jesus participated in property destruction, right? Like he let all the animals out in the temple, flipped over the tables, took out a whip and, and had the, them move. When, when you have money changers sitting next to each other and you spill all the contents of their boxes, how do they sort out what they had? You know, like that's, there's, there's property destruction in that. And I think some, some people's pacifism is like, you can, you can never have that property destruction is the same as killing people. Like, I don't know. I'd probably have some sort of mitigated understanding of that. I personally wouldn't do property damage. I take that back. Uh, There may be some instances where I would, but I think I stopped short of ever killing someone because I don't think killing people is loving enemies personally. I think maybe tackling someone who is trying to kill someone else. I can call that loving, right? I can call certain actions in my mind loving, but as far as like stripping someone of their ability to ever support themselves again or murdering them, I feel like that is uh that's an act of violence that that it doesn't cohere well with my understanding of enemy love that Jesus has taught me. So I know that's just like a bunch of verbal vomit just now, but <laughs> <laughs> I feel pretty strongly about this stuff. I I agree. I mean, I obviously I'm a pacifist as well in in whatever way possible, try to promote non-violence. I guess non-murder is probably more accurate because again, self-defense, all that. I I don't know. I I think basically like my philosophy on pacifism and everything is that I hold it until it doesn't work anymore. And then I figure out a new way, but I am all about creativity and aggressive peacemaking, peacemaking. That is, that is confrontational. Um, I think that part of the reason that I, I think it's difficult to, to describe your place in pacifism is because there's this misnomer that pacifism is the image of turn the other cheek as opposed to the intent when Jesus said, turn the other cheek and how aggressive that actually was culturally. I think a call to pacifism is to be as best of a student as the culture that you live in as possible. And that, that true pacifism is a direct protest against any kind of, any kind of misappropriated or mis uh, aligned power structure that is putting any person oppressed down. And how do you do that without, exponentially creating collateral damage and how do you do that to not just stop the violence but to create instances and moments that change people's perspective and cause cause them to stop and take a second look you know things like things that like happened with uh during the civil rights movement things like selma where they they took a pacifist move they took a non-violent place to show people the the horrific way of violence, you know, and again, my personal interpretation of the cross, I mean, we're recording this right now on, on good Friday. Um, my idea of the cross is that it is a manifestation is an embodiment of what happens when power structures overstep their bounds. Like that is, the, that is a violence that Jesus and some people in our, in our American history have subjected themselves to on purpose for the benefit of people that look at it and, and not in the benefit of like, oh, this hallmark moment right. kind of reflection, but in a in a horrific man, we really need to take a look at this. And then I also so to, before you move on from that, Delonte uh, is a person that I went to a seminary with and he does a really 
good work. We'll put a link on it to his Facebook status. He said, what does it mean? It is finished. How do you preach? It is finished. Like to a community that is dealing with another unarmed black man being killed by the police. Right. How, how do you preach? It is finished. And I never responded to it. There's a lot of good theologians and Bible scholars responding to his status because he's connected to them. What I would say to that, uh, if I could, is that the un the unveiling is is finished the unveiling that um there is a righteous state violence that is good for humanity like these executions are a good thing like the the unmasking of that power is finished we'll never look at it the same way again because the most innocent person was murdered right in in supposedly good circumstances and so when when i look at like wars and things like that we may have all these justifications for it but we could be getting it wrong. And I think that killing someone is the only thing you can never undo. Right. Exactly. Right? I mean, like, like ultimately, like there, there are some things that you, you can never undo, but killing is the, is the like thing that you cannot apologize for. You just can't, you can't pay someone enough money to get, give them their, their kid back. Like that's just not possible. It is the only definitive act that stops any sort of ability to reconcile. Right. And I think that that's uh that the good Friday analogy is really good is that Jesus unmasks, the lie of just violence and just um, especially just state violence. But I also want to resist the the idea that I can speak for other people in their use of violence. Right. Exactly. Which is why I, what I was about to say is that I also take into account that circumstances, everything and why, I, why so, you I preface- said circum- so yeah, I got to stick with that. You said circumstances, everything. Right. And what popped into my brain while you were speaking was this, I, I want to be in a place where I'm ready for peace where I'm ready to, to creatively react to violence to create peace. And I think if I prep myself for conflict and for war, that sometimes that brings it about, right? Like the escalation thing, like where everyone's arming each other, arming themselves, it brings about this violence and this culture of violence. And like, I can't say it's always wrong to kill. It's always wrong, no matter what. I, I'm not like a, a, a radical purist that says, like, this is always wrong and it's never appropriate. What I want to do is what you're discussing, and that is... What is it like to live a life that creatively confronts violence and brings about peace? Not wondering if it's ever wrong to kill, because like that's the the Center for Prophetic Imagination with Mark Van Steenwick, someone we've interviewed before, posted a thing that says, you don't think your way into a new way of life. You live your way into a new way of thinking. What's it like to live the life of peace, of creating peace in all aspects? And how does that change how I think about peace? As opposed to, oh, I'm a pacifist, so I have to act like a, you know, I have to never kill and act like a pacifist. It's it's something that's embodied, I think. And how do I do that on a daily basis? Right. And I I always go back to to Bonhoeffer, you know, a staunch pacifist who ended up being implicit in a plot to try to kill Hitler. And I think that Mm -hmm. there are certain – and I recognize – and going back to what Alan said in the very beginning, I recognize that my lot in life is probably never going to put me in a position where I need to make that decision. So I think that I try as best I can to move away from any disembodied intellectual stance that I have. So anything that I think or speculate on what I would do or what someone else should do in a circumstance that I have never and probably will never experience, I hold as loosely as possible because it's, it's, it's disembodied. It doesn't go anywhere. It's hypothetical. And I think that uh, to make a stance or to tell people how to live in those instances is um, – the one the place I back away from that, I guess, where I would disagree with that is in voting in the way we construct our, our, our society and our culture and our country. We vote for people that routinely kill people in third world countries to keep our weapons strong. 
there's no other way to put it. Like we fight proxy wars, right? With in Syria against other major powers just to keep our slapping hand strong and we kill these other people. And I think our votes actually create that stuff. We willingly put people in power who don't bat, uh, bat an eye at conflict and armed conflict. And I think that we need to be a, a society that puts people in power who are actively involved in peacemaking, not right. <laughs> right. But I mean, we can have a whole conversation on yeah, a, whether voting is an embodied act anyway. Um, See, that's uh, where, that's actually what, uh, that's what I was just trying to say. Thank you. That's exactly what it was. I was trying, I've, I'm trying to tell people it is you're creating something. You're not just avoiding, you know, the lesser evil. You're actually actively creating stuff when you vote. Anyway, I get kind of passionate about that. So we should probably move on to the next question before I have a uh, maybe, maybe we'll have a voting episode around November. <laughs> <laughs> oh, gosh. Oh, gosh. Thank you. Um, who, who said that? This is Jeremy. Up the topic? Jeremy. Thank you, Jeremy. Yes, thank you. Um, all right. Our next question is actually an audio question. So we will play it for you. And then we have another question from that from someone else in the same area of the world, which is awesome. We're getting international listeners uh, that's along the same topic. So we're going to kind of not lump them together, but well, I guess <laughs> I guess lump them we'll together, lump them together. Uh, because they, they, they center around the same topic. So um, here is Jessica from Australia. Hello, I'm Jessica and I'm from Australia. I'm really enjoying your podcast. Uh, as a mother, I'm wondering what will you teach your children about Christianity, God, the Bible, and Jesus? Also, uh, there's a book I think you might be really interested in called The Critical Journey by Janet O. Haigberg, um, and it's about stages in the life of faith. I think um, I've found a lot of encouragement out of it, and you might too. Thanks. Thank you, Jessica, for your feedback. And we will put the book that you mentioned in the show notes. So that's in the show notes at arenacast.com slash 115 in case anyone out there is interested. Um, and then we also got this email from Kate in Australia. And she says, hi, guys, I just discovered your podcast and I'm working my way through each episode. I haven't listened to at least half of those available. So I apologize if my question has already been discussed. Uh, it has not, actually. This is not an issue that we have broached uh, thus far in the work of the podcast. She goes on to say, I live in Australia in an area where I don't know any other progressive or post-evangelical Christians, let alone any churches or gatherings that might have similar theology slash beliefs. I have two young children who I am keen to raise in a faith community. I'm unsure as to whether an evangelical slash conservative church is preferable to attend than no church at all for the sake of my children's spiritual development and relationships with other people of faith. I would love to hear your opinions on this. Thank you for your show. I've learned so much from every episode and love hearing your opinions and insights. Kate, uh, thank you so much. So kind. Everyone is so wonderful. Um, they are. For, first thing, I think that a lot of people can relate to that isolation and it has to be so acute when it involves your children. So I'm sorry that there's not a, a dearth of communities you could just join at any moment to have your children poured into. Uh, that's the thing that I miss the most about uh, my evangelical upbringing is that there was places to belong in these churches with tons of kids and tons of adults who loved on you. And yes, they wanted you to be a very certain way, <laughs> but at least they were involved in your life, you know? Um so, so I I feel that. And secondly, man, the hesitation to just send your kids to any Sunday school, I, I feel that. I totally get that. These things are really powerful that we're talking about. Like, who is God? How does God look at you? Who are you? Uh, are you inherently evil <laughs> as a kid? Are you, like, beloved? They're, they're important topics, and I, I understand the 
the need at some point to be like, is this really good for my kids or not? The first question is, uh, what would you teach your children about Christianity, the Bible, or Jesus? Jeff, do you want to answer that? I don't have any children. I do have some kids in my life that, that I see, but I don't see them on a daily basis. So how would you answer that? What are you teaching your children about Christianity, the Bible, and Jesus? Right. So, so this is something that I've struggled with as well. Number one is along with, with Kate, your question of a faith community. Uh, I think right now we are in, I mean, I'm working at a church, but my family really doesn't necessarily attend all that much due to work and all that kind of thing. And it's tough because I think I'm in a place now where I have for the most part, like reconciled my past and my present in terms of being able to be thankful for my church upbringing and really seeing it as an important part of who I am and mourning that, that my kids might not have that experience depending upon, you know, our movement forward and, and where we want to go and all that kind of stuff. Um, and in terms of how do I teach my kids about God and all that kind of stuff, my evangelical upbringing is pretty helpful because at this point in their development, they think in black and white terms. They think in terms of where an evangelical approach for the most part in talking about God and Jesus as real concrete people and things and talking about the stories of the Bible, um, you know, in, in real ways, because for them, you know, <laughs> for them, uh, Abraham and Jesus and David are just as real as like Supergirl and whatever else that they're watching on TV, like their, their stories. And especially one of my daughters just engages in stories. I kind of take the approach that when they start asking questions, then that's my cue that developmentally they're in a place Absolutely. To then begin to look at things more deeply. And until then, I'm not going to communicate them deeply. I don't want to impose my deconstruction on my kids, I think is what I'm saying. And um, to give them baggage and problems that they may not be have use for at the moment. Right. Exactly. One Uh, one thing that that you just said that uh, like springs to my mind is affirming their impulses as little theologians, like affirming their exploration, their construction of who God is, asking them questions in response to their questions. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. I think that that's, that's as important as what, what you actually, you know, definitively teach them. One thing that comes to my mind is like, I think that you should be free as a parent to tell the stories of the tradition of the Bible. Like you said, Abraham or Jesus to tell them as these stories that you find meaning in. And be really clear on why you like these stories or why you think they're helpful or what about them. Because there are some stories that may not be appropriate. Like I remember when I was a little kid being taught about Noah and, you know, everybody dying <laughs> and trying to like hit the ark to try to get inside and be like, what the hell? <laughs> like, why are all these people being murdered as a kid? Oh, that's a good thing. That's holy. And it's like, well, me as a kid, I don't have the the capacity to think about cultural implications, to think about things more abstractly and connect them to different ideas and hold these things loosely or take something like I don't have the ability to do that. That kind of stuff. So I think for me, I would highlight some really meaningful stories in the tradition. Get them really clear for yourself as a parent why they speak to you. And then, yeah, tell the stories to the kids and ta- ask them questions about the story. But you can, you should have a couple handful of things in your theological like uh, toolbox that you know are really important to you to teach your kids. Like God loves you. God is love, right? Like get a handle on that and discover ways to teach your, that, that to your kids and talk about what that means in Jesus. And don't be afraid to be, um, to experiment with that, you know, and, and talk, but listening to your kids ask questions. I've, I've seen that firsthand 
when kids start asking questions, that's a great time to jump in and recognize that these conversations can happen. Yeah. And I think that, um, you know, there are developmentally inappropriate stories in scripture and Absolutely. <laughs> don't tell them, <laughs> you know, like Noah's Ark, <laughs> even the cross I find difficult. Like, how do I explain yeah. the nuance of that? And I, so I, I don't. You don't so my your family might be down listening. And be like, let's talk about execution and stuff. Right, exactly. <laughs> no, and it's, it's like, uh... <laughs> horribly awkward to see it happen in church where it's like, oh, no, don't, don't, don't. And then they do. Anyway. And so uh, I think it's important to find a, a, a community that knows what's um, appropriate. And people are trained in that. We're going to have an episode where we bring on Bonnie Rambob, one of the ministers that was in the intersections episode. So she can talk about her work with children because she has a website and a ministry that that deals with the spiritual development of children, this exact topic, and we'll have a whole conversation. I do want to throw one last thing out as an aside. This may not answer your question directly. I was watching a little kid pray in first grade, and they referred to God as God the Builder, like Bob the Builder, like the show with like the construction. And I was like, that is so cool. That is so cool. Like seeing kids construct in their mind like things about God or I, I love it. I love these questions that kids have and, and the insights that they may have. Right. It's good. It's good. And then I, I would say that um, I think the most important job, maybe not the most important, but one of the most important things, at least one of the most important values that my wife and I share when it comes to our children is to create an environment where no question is ever off limits and not just not just off limits, but not ignored and that whatever answers we give are more invitation to ask more questions if need be. And I think that as they develop, that that setting will help their development more than anything because then they'll know and you'll take their cue from their development when they're developing critical thinking skills and how to kind of answer those questions. And then being honest when you don't know the answers right. and creating that kind of environment. Um, in terms of ideas of Christianity, there's a couple things that I would recommend. Um, Matthew Paul Turner has written two children's books, one called When God Made Light and the other one, When God Made You. They're wonderful. And then there's um, a series of books that I was just introduced to. They're, uh, they're by a, a woman named Marie Helen Delville. I think that's, I'll, again, I'll put all this in the show notes um, or links to these all in the show notes, but she does some really good ones. They're kind of like the four young children series. So she has one, the ones that we've read to our girls are, uh, Psalms for young children and images of God for young children. And they're good. I don't, they're great. They're to kind of introduce those concepts and those ideas. And, uh, in terms of Kate, in terms of your question regarding like church community and all that kind of stuff, I go back and forth about this. I know a lot of parents, they go to a church just for their kids and, I don't know. I don't know if that's not necessarily such a bad idea. If you're willing to stomach certain things, if you think that the community is overall healthy for your, your children, I don't know. I have a hard time with that one because I benefited so much from youth group. Right. I'm so grateful for that experience. I wouldn't be here without it. Uh, but at the same time, I struggle with that with my kids. Do I really want them as kids to go to a Sunday school that's saying all these things against what I do? And then how do I maneuver that without creating an adverse relationship that my kid feels caught in the middle between the church and their parents about what they believe and what's going on. What I would recommend, what I would recommend is just Googling godly play in quotes, geo, you know, godly play. There are churches that are more progressive that use that paradigm for their Sunday school. I guess it's a new thing. I haven't delved into it too deeply. There's not a lot of kids at my church, but um, I've, I've recognized the progressive churches that I really look up to 
all have this as a part of their Sunday school curriculum for the really young kids. So just look at your area, look up Godly Play, and if a church has it on their website, you might want to give it a chance. Or put something out there and start. Maybe, start you know, maybe there are yeah. more progressive and post-evangelical Christians in your area that are that are feeling just as alone as you are. And if you put something out there, a feeler, to find out if there are more people and kind of see what happens. That's a great question. And we'll it really is. Yeah. Uh, hopefully that hopefully that sets you in the right direction and, and recognize, you know, we're not experts, um, especially in parenting. I can tell you firsthand, I think uh, Bonnie might be. We're going to be inviting her on. Right. So <laughs> so Bonnie, straight. the episode that we're going to be having soon, you know, her parent, her kids are grown and she has much more perspective than uh, those of us that are in the midst of it. Because I can tell you the one thing that I know for sure that parenting does is cause you to second guess every single thing that you do. <laughs> um, so. Uh, yeah, so th- that's a that's a good subject. So I'm looking forward to uh, us having Bonnie on for that, and hopefully, uh, hopefully that'll provide more clarity than than perhaps we are right now. But again, thank you so much, uh, Kate and Jessica, both for sending in your questions, and it's so awesome. It's from Australia. When we started this, I never thought or expected that we'd have regular listeners in other countries. It felt so I don't know. It feels so weird. I'm sitting here in front of a computer, the same place I always record this episode, and to think that. People are downloading it. Anyway, thank you so much. Um, so our final question for the AMA comes from, and again, forgive me if I mispronounce any of your names. Uh, feel free to send us an audio of your the pronunciation <laughs> of your name. Uh, but this question comes from Facebook, and it's from Jim Henvik. And he says, can you believe in science and miracles? So just to give a, a small response, a short one, I think we should have an episode on this. Jeff, you said that. We should have yeah. a whole episode. I agree. We need this a miracle episode. This is the main topic of conversation. Um, if you listen to David Hume back in the day, he would say no. David Hume doesn't believe that miracles exist. He was a philosopher. He says they only happen in third world countries. Um, if we go back further, Baruch Spinoza would say that the laws of physics are God's will, like one expression of God's will. Um, but there's a really good book called Miracles, written by Craig Keener, K-E-E-N-E-R, and he basically just surveys the miracles stories that do exist in the quote-unquote first world. Like David Hume split up the world, right? There's these third world, uneducated people. Miracles happen there, but they don't happen in any enlightened areas. Well, Craig Keener surveys miracles in the quote-unquote enlightened areas, the North American or European centers, and there's just so many of them. I read through that book, and it's just thing after thing that basically debunks the idea that miracles are a phenomenon for the uneducated or whatever, or the culturally different than whatever social location you're in. So I think that's a good place to maybe start as to where miracles, do they exist, um, or do those stories exist? One thing that I question is, um, what is the origination of that? Do we attach that meaning afterward to a surprising phenomenon? How is God interacting with the world? I don't do science. One thing I would say about science and miracles is that what I believe about miracles doesn't determine what I believe about science. Science is the – sorry, Jeff. I'm just going to jump in on this. Is that okay (laughs) if I just like – just go. <laughs> just go. Just I'll go jump in it. when I get a chance. Okay. Science is is all about reproducing outcomes. So the power of science is the power of predictability. If A, if A and B happens, C will happen. And so science's power is in explaining 
like what's about to happen or, or what's a consequence of, of different things happening. So being able to reproduce something over and over is experimentation that builds the body of science. I think that's awesome. I don't think it's great to look at a scenario from a scientific perspective where a rock rolls down a hill and you say, you know, what some of the ancients might have said is that a god's pushing it or something like that. I, I, I don't personally construe um, my worldview that way. I think science is sort of isolated from the world of miracles in a philosophical way. It starts out with the idea that we can explain things from natural phenomenon, and I think it should remain that way. I remember my teacher in middle school drawing a big circle with science in one, drawing a big circle with religion in the other, and I was so pissed. I was pissed off that you would ever separate religion and science because the Bible tells us you know, everything that we should know about science, and uh, I think I'm in a different place now, but – I do believe miracles happen personally, so I, I, I accept science. When 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 scientists in the world agree ninety five percent that you know something happens, I take that as important for my faith. That informs my faith. My faith doesn't necessarily inform my science. I don't think it works the same way between those two. Um, maybe that's heresy, <laughs> but I believe that miracles do happen because I've I've seen some, I've experienced some, and what I believe right now, and this may change in the future, is that it's possible God interacts from the world in a bottom-up causation. There's randomness at the bottom of the world if you look at uh, quantum physics. And some scientists may say this is just you know punting a god of the gaps, but that God affects it from the bottom up so that you can explain miracles in naturalistic ways. I think if you look at any miracle, you could say there's a natural explanation for that. It doesn't make it any less of a miracle for me. That's that's basically where I've, yeah. If 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 God influences quantum events, they could accumulate from the bottom up to produce macroscopic changes that fully accord with what is naturalistically possible, even if it's improbable. So it's not like God's violating the laws of nature. That's where I'm at right now. Um, I think we should do a whole episode where we delve into this. Jeff, what do you think? Are miracles just? It's left in the past, shouldn't they? They shouldn't be a part of our faith, or what do you think? Honestly, I think this goes back to cultivating story, um, in the sense that I have personally, fundamentally uh, disregarded the dichotomy or the the divide or the binary of science and faith as science equals fact and faith equals mystery or unknown or whatever. When I think in terms of science, I think the basis of science is never accepting any answer as fact. It's a it's an exploration of the tangible things of life. Uh, and that's, to me, what science is. And I don't see it in any way incompatible with miracle because maybe there's not an explanation. Maybe there is. But to me, that doesn't take away from the fact that the way I frame a miracle is some kind of experience, some kind of happening in your life that – may not have an explanation or may have an explanation, but it is miraculous enough to frame your story going forward. And hmm. I'd say live in it, you know, accept it, move in it. Um, I think that uh, in it, just in terms of other places to kind of get this information, uh, we've had a couple episodes where we delve into like quasi miracles and the supernatural. I think our first Halloween episode, episode number 34, ironicast.com slash 
34. We talked about, about the one. supernatural. Um, and then we, our very, th- our third episode, ironicast.com slash three, we talked about evolution. So we, we explored that difference between science and faith and all that kind of stuff. And I think anything, <clears throat> if you haven't already, I would look into the work of Mike McGarg, science Mike, who holds loosely, wonderfully the idea of science and faith and recognizes that there are things that are part of his stories that he has no explanation for that seem to fly in the face of different facts, but they're part of ex- his experience and his life. And I think that that's the most important thing. Uh, for me, a, a tangible explanation never, never devalues something in my life that I would consider a miracle. Um, if, if anything, it heightens it because it, it says for me that, that it's number one possible again, <laughs> you know, and number two possible for someone else in terms of what that story or what that moment did for, for my life moving forward. So I think you can hold the thing, two things beautifully. I think you can hold any opposing ideas or forces in your life beautifully because you're human and you're nuanced and you can have paradox within your life and be fine with that. I'm not moving in and out of that. I know you're not. <laughs> I am I'm more of, I'm more of like a life of the mind kind of thing. And so I think for me, the philosophy of religion is really important. If God interacts with the world, how does that happen? Is that even possible in a world that is completely natural and explainable by physical causes? So we should definitely bring this up again in the future. Um, for me, it centers on divine the, – the concept, um, just to say, it, is divine action. Is there divine action? Does God take actions in the world? Is God just supporting all the physical laws or does God break them or does God interact with the world in maybe a different way? Um, though that, that's worthy of discussing outside of – just personal experience that maybe you can't always get away from it, but also getting a grip on it from like a systematic theological perspective. I think that's super interesting. And we'll bring up some, some more thinkers in that conversation. Right. And, and I would say even the divide of, is this, is it, is it all about divine action? I would say that all action is divine action. And how can you separate any action from being divine and another action, not being divine and what that means and where that goes and all that kind of stuff. So uh, yep. Yeah, that's a that's a big question. And it's definitely I think we were talking about this episode and which order we do the questions and stuff. We thought we give our brief response to this one and then we definitely put it on the agenda for a full episode because I think it deserves as such. Um, it do. Yeah. So that's uh, all the questions we have for this week. So we want to continue to do this as like a regular segment. So anytime you want to write into the show again, I know we're kind of hammering that home this time, but I feel like in our discussion about the show, we're kind of in an era of, I don't know, audience participation or an era of cultivating stories, so to speak, of really trying to um, capture the idea of conversation in this particular podcast. So uh, we're always open. Again, you can go to our webpage. You can leave a voicemail on our mess on our webpage like you heard today and you can email us all that kind of stuff. Alan, how can people find you individually if they want to find out what you have going on? Facebook is always, even with that recent hack, I'm still on there. <laughs> <laughs> Not hack or whatever. I'm a. Uh, I'm unfortunately probably going to be on Facebook till I die. So you yeah, can find probably. me there. Sla- Facebook.com slash Alan Ob A L L E N O B, and you can follow me. I may or may not friend you, um, but you can see what's going on. You can comment on my statuses and whatnot, and what's going on in my life. Sounds good. And you can follow me on all the socials, uh, 
Well, I have a private page, so you might find my private page on Facebook, but I don't accept friend requests and it's not public at all. Uh, but I do have a public Facebook page that I'm, I'm more and more cultivating and trying to, to post on a regular basis and create interaction. So you can check that out. Uh, Instagram, Twitter, Twitter, I'm not so good at, but I'm working on. And, uh, you can listen on the second and fourth Thursday of every month to my other podcast, Divine Cinema. That's, uh, at divinecinema.net. And we just talk about movies with themes of faith, uh, good and bad. Uh, as for Irenacast, if you enjoy what we hear, uh, we'd appreciate it if you recommend it to a friend or leave us a rating and review on whatever podcasting platform you're listening on. We'd really appreciate it. Or if you'd like to support our show in some kind of financial way, you can do that by going to irenacast.com slash Amazon before you make your next Amazon purchase and then just shop as usual. Uh, using that link, we'll receive a small percentage of your purchase without any extra cost to you. Uh, that'll help us in covering a little bit of the cost that's associated with running the podcast. That's irenacast.com slash Amazon. Uh, so for this week, I'm Jeff. I'm a conflicted pacifist <laughs> who may or may not believe in miracles. Uh huh. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for joining the conversation. 